You're listening to the Gates Church Podcast. For more information or to support this ministry, please visit thegates.org. What we have now is an opportunity to uh, read God's Word together, to listen to the Holy Spirit, and, and pay attention to what He would be teaching us and guiding us in this morning. And so um, I pray that our, our hearts would be open uh, as we do that and as we read and pray. Um, our current series of messages is from the book of Galatians. Uh, Galatians is a letter from the Apostle Paul. You can find it in the New Testament. If you have your Bible, I'd invite you now to uh, open it up to uh, this this letter from, from Paul, who's a leader of the early church, and he's writing this letter to the early church in the region of Galatia. That's why it's called Galatians. Um, and we're, we're partway through. We've learned a lot so far, and everything we've learned has fallen under this theme of uh, freedom, hasn't it? Um, but Paul's not just teaching us about freedom or explaining freedom in Christ to us, but he's reminding Christians of, of freedom in a way that uh, he's basically he's in combat mode. Isn't he? Paul's been uh, in combat mode for this entire letter. It's it's an argument more so than an encouragement, uh, because he's become aware of of the problem in these churches where people are um, saying to the Christians that yes, Jesus provides freedom for you if you continue to or change to become uh, like traditional Jewish people as well. Paul's not okay with this because he sees this as a, a serious compromise to the gospel of Jesus and to the, the actual freedom that Jesus provides for us. So this is why he's on the offense and why he is, his tone is quite angry throughout the whole thing. And this morning we're going to find that it's no different. Um, so today we're jumping right into the discussion. And our passage is actually, it's kind of a peculiar one. It's a little bit different and you'll, you'll see what I mean as we read through it. Um, but it's it's really good. I'm, I'm going to read the passage, and then I will attempt to explain it a little bit further and talk about what what Paul's saying and what it means. And after that, we'll uh, change directions and see how perhaps we can apply it to our, our hearts and lives as well. So, like I said, if you have a Bible, uh, you can open it to Galatians. We'll be in chapter four. If you don't have one, that's just fine. We'll put it on the, the screen as well. Uh, I'll be starting at verse 21, reading through to verse 31. So Galatians 4, 21 through to 31. This is Paul speaking. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it's written, Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She's Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one, who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. 
Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Amen. They say that there's uh, two kinds of people in this world. Those who like to divide the world into groups of two people and those who don't. Reading this passage uh, makes us think that uh, Paul is the former. Why is he Why is he doing this? Why is he continuing to talk about uh, slaves and free people and 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 all of this? And so why does why does he come to this story from the Old Testament and use it as a metaphor and and sort of retell about these two um, wives of Abraham? What's going on here? So. If you have been following through Galatians, you'll recall that this isn't the first time that uh, Paul brings up the the story of Abraham. We've heard this already a couple of times, particularly in Galatians chapter 3, which I'll remind us of. Galatians 3, 7 and 9 says, Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would just the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And then further, 3.29, Paul says, And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So Paul's touched on this a couple of times, and he returns to it again. And what's the deal with, with Abraham and his family? Why do, why do we need to keep thinking about this or be reminded of this? Or why did the Galatians need to hear about this? Well, it's because Abraham, his family, and his story is at the, the very heart and center of the Jewish tradition. Abraham is the patriarch of the Jews. And and certainly it seems like the the people who are trying to impress upon Gentile Christians that they must become Jews would be using the story of Abraham as a kind of leverage or pressure on these Christians or as a way of, at the very least, um, making their case. So Paul returns to the story of Abraham and he attempts to use it to disprove those arguments. And I believe he does quite well. Abraham is a man of faith. Uh, the Old Testament says this, and Paul agrees with this. But the problem is that the Judaizers want to divide the world based on the tradition of Abraham, who's in and who's out as Jews, even in the context of Christianity. And this is where Paul has a problem, and he wants to dispel this myth and bring Christians back to the truth salvation in Christ alone. Paul's view of Abraham is very different from the traditional standpoint, isn't it? Like I said, he's already shown how Abraham's life is 
and God's promise with Abraham, it's, it's fully in line with the good news of Jesus for all people. All nations will be blessed by Abraham, he reminds us. We are heirs according to the promise of God, Jews and Gentiles. So what we've read now in chapter 4 is his attempt to show how Abraham's family story uh, does not condemn Gentile Christians at all, but rather it's all a part of God's uh, glorious plan for salvation for those who are not of the Jewish tradition. And I love how he begins his argument in verse 21. He says, so you want to live under the Jewish law. Have you read the law? Come on. Let me tell you a thing about the law. And I don't know if you know this, but Paul's allowed to do this because he's an expert in the law. He knows the law uh, super well. So there's actually a poetic justice to him using the law in the way that he does for the glory of Christ. And it's, it's really cool. So empowered by the Holy Spirit, he retells the story. There's Sarah and Hagar. He says this can be taken as a metaphor, which means uh, there's a deeper meaning to the story that applies to his listeners. And he explains how Christians are free. People are free. People are made right before God, not because of the law, but because of God's perfect faithfulness and his promises. Now, the story of of Abraham and his family and his sons and so on can be found in the book of Genesis, uh, particularly Genesis 16, 17, and 21. Uh, I would encourage, I'm I'm not going to be reading the story this morning because it is long, but this week, uh, I would love it if we all went home and read from Genesis to, uh, you know, hear exactly from the book. Uh, but I would like to quickly summarize because Paul kind of makes the assumption that we know these characters and he uses some, some tricky language and he, uh, you know, there's symbols and all these things and it, it's, it's a little hard to understand, especially if we don't, if we're not experts in the law like Paul is, which we aren't, or I'm not. Anyways, so God promises to make Abraham's offspring great and important people of God. But there's a problem because Abraham's wife, whose name is Sarah, is unable to bear children. And so as was customary in that time and culture, Abraham took one of their slaves as his second wife, whose name was Hagar. Hagar and Abraham conceived and gave birth to Abraham's first son, whose name is Ishmael. This was Abraham and Sarah's way of solving the problem, so to speak. But it actually created a problem because the problem with what Abraham and Sarah chose to do with Hagar and the birth of Ishmael was that this was not how it was supposed to happen. God didn't instruct Abraham anywhere about, um, you know, finding someone else and and how the, the son would be happening that way. No, it was always supposed to be with his wife, Sarah. But Abraham and Sarah, they they lost faith in God's promise. They decided they knew a, a better way of carrying on the line of of their people, which God had promised to them. And so they went ahead with it differently. 
Nevertheless, a little bit later, Sarah does miraculously become pregnant and give birth to a son named Isaac when Abraham was 100 years old. God's covenant to Abraham was freely given. It was completed by his grace, and God was faithful in his plan as was originally promised, even in spite of uh, Abraham and, and Sarah's doubts and, and how they tried to mess it up, basically. Isaac is the promised son. He's the one who continues the family line on into the 12 tribes and, and so on. So this is the, the story that Paul's digging into and, and he's finding uh, symbols everywhere. And it's amazing. Like I said, it's also kind of confusing just going from Galatians chapter 4. If that's all we had to read, it's like, I don't understand half of what he said uh, at best. So I tend to learn things well when they're uh, mapped out for me or, or charted in some way. I'm visual, and if they're organized in front of me, then I can understand things a little bit better sometimes. Um, and I guess I'm not the only one who sees this passage that way because every resource that I was studying, except for one, I think, had a chart in it which... Um, described this story in two columns so as to uh, put on display the contrast of what Paul's saying and also reorganize it so that maybe it works better in our brains. I'm not sure. So um, I sent, I believe Connor got this chart. He can uh, put it up there. And we'll see if we look at things this way. It, it's quite plain, or per- hopefully it's, it's more uh, plain, what Paul's getting at and the the contrast between these two people and what they symbolize. And it does flow together quite nicely. So on the left, we have Hagar, who was actually Abraham's second wife, like I said. She gave birth to Ishmael by the flesh. They were slaves, and so Paul sees them as representatives or symbols of spiritual slavery. And he likens this to present Jerusalem, which is the core of, of the Jewish religion. It's where these Jewish influencers probably came from. And this is possibly the most insulting thing that he has uh, said about these Jewish leaders, is to compare them to this side of the metaphor. But he backs it up. He says it's, it's through the Old Covenant You rely on the law, on works of the flesh, so on and so forth. And the end result, using scripture, he says, is that these people are cast out. They're not included in the promise. They're not a part of God's covenant of grace. On the other hand, we have Sarah, Abraham's wife, and and Isaac, the promised son, that's how he was born, was, was by God's miraculous uh, grace. And, Abraham, uh, and Isaac, sorry, is free. This is what he represents, is spiritual freedom for those who place their faith in God. Paul uh, says, rather than the present Jerusalem, which is a city, uh, the, the core of Jewish religion, he says that... Uh, Isaac can be likened to the future Jerusalem or Jerusalem above. And, and 
all that this means is is the church, uh, the New Testament speaks of, of Jerusalem restored, of it, of it being God's city once and for all, and of all nations being there under God through Christ. So this is what the Jerusalem above refers to. It's, it's heaven. Um, and this is through the new covenant. The covenant through the blood of Jesus, not through the law, through the freedom that we've been given by Christ. And the result, as opposed to being cast out, once again, Paul says that we're heirs through the promise. Sarah is our mother. We're no longer enslaved to sin and death. You can leave that up there for a couple of minutes, Connor, as I continue. So it's probably happening. It doesn't say this, but it's quite safe to assume that the Jewish leaders, they're teaching Gentile Christians that they're not under Sarah, the mother. They're not like Isaac, the son, but that they're like Ishmael, right? Because they're not Jews. And and like I said, they're applying pressure on them to convert to Judaism uh, and mix it with Christianity, and thus become justified uh, in the flesh through the law, according to not God's grace, but the Old Testament covenants. Paul disagrees. He uses their story and logic, and he fires it back at them. And he says, actually, no, you who abide by the Old Covenant in Jerusalem are going to be cast out because of your faith and works and flesh instead of the promise, the power of God as revealed in Jesus Christ. He says, anyone who places their faith in Christ is like Isaac, children of promise, free, born again by God's Spirit, which is the only way that anyone is made to be a child of God. We become heirs through promise. Um, In John's Gospel, we can read Jesus teaching about this, about uh, being born again, about the power of the Spirit and how we're made alive by His Spirit and so on. He's teaching Nicodemus in John 3, 3, and I'll jump to 5 and 6 after that. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one's born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which, of, uh, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So to be saved is to be spiritually born again. While we were once under the curse of the law, born to flesh that is, is sinful and decaying and dying away, God's Spirit brings us into his kingdom. God's Spirit opens our eyes to see the kingdom and, and, and invites us in and makes us a part of his family. Paul believes this. And he wants us to believe this and hang on to this. There's a lot more that can be said, especially about Paul's allegory between um, the story of the the two wives and the different symbols that they represent and so on. So please, once I encourage you um, to go to Genesis um, and read this account on your own. And then to go back to Galatians chapter 4 
and see what God would be showing you as you do this. There's a lot there, and it's, it's good, and it will remind us and encourage us of uh, the good news of Jesus. Uh, but I'd like to change directions before we conclude and to uh, challenge us with, with the story of Abraham, perhaps in a personal way, and if not, uh, at least in a corporate way uh, for the church, for us as a group. But it may be personal, I'm not sure. Um, so as we said, Abraham's first son, he's born outside of the promise that God made to Abraham. Ishmael was conceived out of a lack of patience and trust and, and actually faith in God's promise. Abraham, the man of faith, he didn't have faith in that decision. Which, if we put ourselves in their shoes, it does uh, seem to make sense, right? Abraham and Sarah, they were so old. They were old when God made the promise. And so time continued, and they they just started to wonder, you know, what was going to happen after all? Would God follow through? Maybe he forgot a detail or something. And so they made their decision out of doubt. Uh, They took things into their own control, and really, they messed things up by doing this. The story of Hagar is not a happy one. Um, God does take care of her. God takes care of everything throughout the story. But meanwhile, in the meantime, Abraham and Sarah, they caused some serious consequences and complications and problems for their family, for the story of God's people, because they couldn't wait for the thing that God said he would give to them. They doubted God's faithfulness because things were starting to look bleak for them. So this is where I challenge us to to take from this, um, to learn from the story, and to pray about it. Ask ourselves, are we currently placing our trust in God for the promises that he has given to us? Are we placing our trust in God for the promises that he's given us? Are we living like Abraham in his doubt or in his faith? Like I said, in his doubt, Abraham basically tried to fix God's plan or add something to it so it would bring it and and fit it into his own timing. They wanted to catalyze the equation to tweak it, and the end result was, was a world of pain, and it ends up being Paul's example for those who are enslaved. On the other hand, true freedom is found while we faithfully wait on the Lord. So as we ask ourselves and when we pray about these things, what, I guess what I'm talking about is motivation. When we're faced with decisions or, or situations or just life in general, are we motivated by the fact that we've placed our trust in God, who's, who's promised good to us? Or are we motivated by fear and doubt and the unknown, and so we desire our, our own control of life instead? And these are hard questions to ask, and it depends. Like I don't know what this means for you personally. It depends on different situations, doesn't it? Um, but generally speaking, the stuff that... Paul's talking about with the Gentiles, to bring it back to that. 
Um, it seems like they're struggling to figure this out, both theologically and practically. Leaders are pressing them to, to doubt their salvation through Christ alone, through what he accomplished, to seek out additions to satisfy their needs for assurance for what's already been done and given through Jesus. We're tempted by this all the time, aren't we? We're, te- we're tempted to, to wander off, um, to look at other options, and certainly to try and control things for our own outcome rather than simply abiding in God and following his spirit. And, and Paul's going to teach us more as we continue in Galatians about these things as well. But the point is we have to resist those temptations, resist the devil as he promises ways for us to get around whatever it's going to require for us to get to the thing that God has, has called us to, whether it's humility or patience or, or any of these things, the, the fruit of the Spirit. As Paul tells us in a different letter, yes, we should test all things, but we have to hold fast to what is good. I think I've said this before, but when we think of that verse, we're like, yeah, let's test all things. We gotta, we always have to, you know, wonder and question, but we forget the second half, which is holding fast to the good that God shows us and gives us in our lives and, and to not let go of the promises. So whatever this may mean for you specifically, I know that as a whole, um, we must once again receive the truth that Jesus alone is our, our means for true and eternal life, for, for rebirth and salvation and entrance into the kingdom of God and uh, makes us into God's children and heirs to the throne and all these things. If we accept this, we believe that what Jesus did was sufficient for us, we don't need to look further than his death on the cross, his resurrection three days later, and the life that we have through this. The faith that we place in Jesus is our key to freedom, now and eternally. Uh, Romans chapter 5, which we, I, I think we've read a couple times recently, I wanted to return to. as a way to conclude Romans 5, 1 to 2. Paul says there, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access, again, by faith, into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Amen. As we reflect on these things and uh, what God's teaching us, and as we give thanks, I would invite us to receive uh, the Lord's Supper this morning as an expression, as a response to God, an expression of worship. Uh, we provide this opportunity almost every week at the gate, and we, we eat and drink the symbols of Jesus' flesh and blood in obedience to him, uh, to accept and declare that Jesus is Lord. 
He's Lord now, and he is Lord until and when he returns. So as you're ready, and as you have um, prayed and, and prepared your heart to to receive this and to say yes to Jesus and accept and give thanks for his grace once again, I would invite you to uh, come up when you f- feel prepared to do that. Uh, the band can come up now as well. Um, after some time, they're going to lead us uh, again in another response to God. It's just a time to sing and worship together. Uh, we have prayer ministers as well. If if, if God's uh, stirring anything in your heart or mind and you want someone to pray with you about what we've been talking about this morning or, or anything else, uh, please, they, they would just love to pray for you and they'll be over there in the back corner. Um, just to close, I'd like to pray now as well and just say, God, you have promised us so much. And, and Jesus, we look to you as the, the pinnacle of this, as the fulfillment of the law, Lord. Thank you for forgiving our sin even while we were still running from you. I thank you, God, for giving us peace, even peace in spite of what we may be up against in our lives this morning, Lord. I pray this morning that your spirit would reveal to us and that we'd be listening, God, to the ways that you have promised good to us and your spirit would strengthen us to continually choose to put our trust in you, God, for everything. Lord, you've blessed us. The most incredible blessing of all, Jesus. And in communion, we give thanks for the kind of love, Lord, that you uh, showed us. It was on full display um, at the cross where Jesus willingly gave himself um, to us who do not deserve such grace and love and yet here we are so God we we take communion with uh, thankful hearts and just as we were just saying God with even rejoicing in communion because of the hope that it's given to us Jesus death and his resurrection the celebration of that this morning we rejoice as we put our hope and our faith in you I pray this all for your glory, God, in Jesus' name, amen.